This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. You're listening to NP All Lit. Poetry, prose, and music from beginning to end. A Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston. All right, so this is from the first uh, section, and it's titled Along the Border. Along the border, on a dirt road, on a drive to El Campo, you found a batey. I cut the cane, we sucked on a stalk, you gave me your arms, I swam in the river, we locked the door, then the lights went out and the radio played. You fingered the pesos, I walked to the beach, we fried the fish, you ate the mango, I jumped in the water, we bought the flowers, then the migrants came and you bartered for more, then the sirens blared, and they were carried away, but we didn't stop them. Then the ocean swept and the palm trees sagged. They were foreigners, we were foreigners, and we lived there. This poem from my collection, My Name is Romero, Flowers on Press, is about something near and dear to my heart, which is burritos. This poem is called That's Rap slash Ode to the Burrito. Oh my God, I've got the greatest idea. We'll take the pride of your people, the most significant dish your culture has ever produced, and we'll turn it into a sandwich. No, a salad. No, a hamburger. No, no, no. I've got it. We'll throw it all on top of a doughy flour tortilla and just wrap it up. Aw, hell no. The seventh seal was broken. The seventh trumpet was sounded. And from the seas arose a dark and unholy beast. Its name carried on fast food menus and neon signs all over the country. The wrap the focus group of food. You were assembled from the rotting carcasses of recipes killed by cultural appropriation. You are a Frankenstein, a monster. And for those travelers who journey throughout Mexico and the Southwest on burros, who invented the burrito, the little donkey, you are truly an ass. Scraps of better food whose quality was sacrificed at the unholy altar of on the go, you are simultaneously warm chicken and cool salad. You are lukewarm. I will spit you out and reject you as they reject us. Those who want to cash in on the popularity of the burrito, but deny Spanish from the menu. Those who love Mexican food, but hate Mexicans. And what have we given to the world? The burrito is a pillow for your mouth. 
It is a voluptuous breast, a full butt cheek. It is something to get lost in. It is carnitas, carne asada, and not ground beef with a side of beans and rice, guacamole, please, but no pinche sour cream. The burrito is quite simply an essay on humanity's struggle for greatness. Greatness achieved. It is all the things that a rap is not. Ban raps forever. Burn all images of their name and likeness in effigy. And on that brave new day, you'll find me at El Tepeyac in Boyle Heights, Los Angeles, eating a burrito as big as your head. So these are just titled interlude. Papi says we are what we do with our hands. At age nine, I curl my fingers around the shell of a coconut. He shows me how to use a machete. The blade turns and winks at me. We catch the sunlight. I wince, my hands afraid of the cut, of the blood that could tremble or trickle down a knuckle. Papi says the machete is built for reaping and revolution, farming and food. Papi names his machete a tool, like the hammer or the pen. He wraps his fingers around mine. We grip the machete. We raise it above our heads. Papi says, do not be afraid of the machete. But I do not want to carry the weight of a weapon in my hands. called uh, La Rosa. Don't make me your mother's cautionary tale and I won't make you mine. When we find each other, accept all that I have to give and take. My thorns can plunge bone deep and twist your heart from your chest, but don't make that our story. I don't have to be the fruit from that elusive garden, the siren calling from the rocks. We can be us two together, no violence involved as long as you accept my giving and my taking. Natural as the waves washing away and returning what you thought was yours. I can be your dream mujer, but never the waiting one, the crying ghost dressed in white that haunts rivers and crossroads for what she has lost. I will not be tethered. I can settle like sediments on a rock for a time Watch the city from the bus window, let you lead us to the way. Always, I will return to my original state of being, folded in on myself to prevent withering, drying out, bunched closed, waiting for the season to open. You will have to time the cycles and hope you get it right. Pull your bleeding hand from my stem and remember what your mother told you about love's furtive flame. Sundown, Levittown, Port Apache, Dirty Harry, John Wayne, Blackface, Minuteman, Moynihan, Gone with the Wind, Breaking Bad. Washington Redskin, Confederate flag, the sword, the dollar, the cannon, the scholar, the cavalry, and the Ivy League. History as written by lightning is the rising smoke of burning village. 
The ways in which victors keep their victims. The frontier thesis notes on the state of Virginia extraction, expansion, the winning of the West, Lewis and Clark, Smith and Wesson, the circle of the wagon with bloodshed and slave sweat, the crack of the whip, the law of three-fifths, the crown republic, the king cotton, the intended failures of reconstruction, the housing covenants that greeted great migration the same to the Mexicans and poor Mexico. So far from evidence, so close to Monroe Doctrine, to Davy Crockett, to prison industrial complex, a war on drugs is a war on our young. Bloody Christmas, reefer madness, 15 to life for four ounces, East Oakland, West Baltimore, South of La Brea and Oliver North, Plymouth Rock, Jamestown, the Rio Grande, stolen lives, stolen land. story. The In-Between Mother. Mother is teaching me to sing the sad songs of her people. She sings them from the cliffs overlooking the sea, and I want to know them, but they are in her seal language. The language she never bothered to teach me, and father said that was best. I don't know the words, but I know the tunes, so I hum along to her barking rhythmic songs. That's how she knows that she is a seal person and not just an animal. Her songs are neither here nor there. She sings more and more now that the seasons are changing and I am old enough to learn. When father returns from the sea, he likes to tell stories of storms off the coast and men overboard. But the story I want to hear most is how he took mother for his bride. I sit at his feet near the heat of the stone fireplace and watch him light his pipe the glow illuminating his weather-worn fisherman's face. He rubs the stubble of his beard with the backs of his fingers, the friction churning the tail into being. I went to the bay where the fishermen say the seal people dance in the dark, and there was your ma, as naked as all, and frolicking round the fires and sparks. Her seal skin lay on the rocks by the bay, so I took it up and I begged her to stay by my side, she obliged, and there we were wed on the cliffs overlooking the bay. He told all his stories in verse, which I love, but when he told this one, mother would busy herself with washing dishes and lighting candles around our cottage. She seemed eager to escape the hearing of it. And what did you do with Ma's skin? I asked him each time, and each time he told me something different. This time the dishes clatter and Ma's head peers around the kitchen doorway to hear. It was mine to keep. That's all he says. Mother's attention falls away. She returns to her duties, but I'm sure she is on the lookout for her missing self. Mother knits me a sweater as the weather turns cold and we are housebound while father is away at sea for days at a time. When he left, she pressed her cold cheeks to his and kissed him. I wonder if she misses him when, she's gone, when he is gone, but we stay busy. These are the months my people would go away to warm a climb, she tells me from her walking chair. By her side, I brush the hair on my wood doll, Samantha, who I named for myself. Her horse hair is slick and fine as mother's silken locks, but Samantha does not get restless like mother. 
She is content to sit in her wicker basket all day until I wish to play with her, but not so with mother. When father is away, she takes me to the cliffs and the beach more often. I imagine she is waiting to be rescued. I think of my faraway grandparents, my seal parents, who must still be calling for her to return. The wind hums through her hair and she throws her head back, arms out and away. She could dive away over the cliff at any moment. I croak for her. My bark and howl are unnatural. It scratches and dies in my throat, but mother stops to comfort me, her unsealed daughter. In the night, her candle flickers across the walls of my parents' home where I sleep in the warmth of their bed when father is gone. She tells me stories of my grandparents and her sisters who swim away in the winter and return in the summer to be near the shore where the fish are. Her hand rolls through the air, mimicking the rolling body of the self she used to be. Her missing skin, she tells me, is the one thing that will make her whole. And have you looked for it, I ask? Her brown eyes spark in the light, but she doesn't say yes or no. You are old enough to know where your place is, she says. What does this mean? I wish I could find it for her to see her beautiful self restored. Father is away longer this time, and mother is at the market stocking up for supplies before the winter winds come in full force. And while she is away, I search the house for her skin. The problem is, I don't know what it should look like. I've only seen seals in the summer lounging on the rocks in the bay. Will it feel like father's rubber fisherman boots or like my dolly's hair? Father's dresser and trunks hold only clothes and old photographs of his family who live three villages away. Do they know he captured a seal woman for his bride? Do they know he had me? We've never talked about it. The only place I hadn't looked is underneath the floor. My hands shake when I take a hammer to the floorboards of their room and peel back the soggy wood. At first, there is only dust and dead spiders, but when I move their bed and pry away the floor, I find a suit of sleek brown fur that feels like skin. I hold it against my face and arms, try to slip my body into it, but it's much too big. I wish to know my seal mother's embrace. Her love is a distant one, practical from day to day, and weighed down with the memories of her former life. Maybe I never knew her sadness until now. Mother returns home with her basket full of new linens, wool for knitting, fat for cooking, flour and candles. I wait for her to remove her bonnet and shawl, to put up the groceries and come to her chair by the fire, the one she vacates for when father, uh, when he is home. Sitting in it is her skin, sitting upright like her second self, she stares at it for a time, then takes it up in her hands, smells it, rubs it against her cheek, and remembers. She starts to cry and drops to her knees. I come to her side and hug her shoulders. I'm so proud to reunite her with her skin that seeing her cry over what she has missed doesn't frighten me. Mother hugs me back and continues to cry. I am crushed between her woman self and her seal self in a warm, slippery embrace. Mother's scramble to the seashore at dawn is how I learn she won't stay. She brings me to and lets me sit on the crystal sand of the beach while she strips off her clothes. The pale skin of her back disappears inside her dark brown seal skin as she rolls it over her shoulders, the head like a hood that envelops her face and makes her animal though I know she isn't. 
The only part of her I recognize are her deep brown eyes, now wide and set bulging from the seal head. Mother waddles towards the waves, looks back at me and dives away. When father returns in two days, I am the only one left to tell him that she is gone. In the spring, I tempt mother back to me with fresh mackerel from a bucket, but she won't be fooled to separate herself from her skin again. Out of all the seal brethren, she alone heeds my whining call, the right cry this time. She nuzzles my hand and face, bends back and forth and barks for me. Father asks how I know it is her. I know. I'm going to pull the first piece from the plain verse set in, in the book here. This is a pantoum, so you'll hear a lot of repetition because this gives um, a little bit of the history and kind of sets up the Haitian massacre. Scene two. The hills become a hospital. The river becomes a bed. The border becomes a wall. Me. The wounds had been made by a machete, but America didn't care about it as a news story. And in a hospital along the border, men, women, and children lay severed, limb stumps pulsing angry red against black skin. And while America didn't care about us as a news story, Irelia Gideon, nine, Senalia Pierre, 22, Cameron Pion, 11, lay severed. Limb stumps pulsing angry, red against black skin, whole families fleshed by the flashing fury of a machete. Survivors like Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron cried out, clenched fist, tongue, trilled tongues, and swallowed screams. Whole families fleshed red, a fury of flashing machetes, asking what had they done to deserve this? crying out, clenched fist, tongue trills, and swallowed screams, thousands of butchered bodies buried beneath ravines, burn with why. What had they done to deserve this? Separated skin, kin, and bone, felled from flesh, floating down a river red, with thousands of butchered bodies bobbing and burning along ravines, there was only one who denied it the president of Santo Domingo, separated skin, kin, felled bone from flesh and sent it floating down a river red, while Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron remember the only one who denied it, the president of Santo Domingo. And in a hospital along the border, men, women, and children like Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron remember their wounds made by a machete. in its title, My Father's Love Letters. On Fridays or Saturdays, I imagine he would turn the plastic top from the bottle of aguardiente and sip and shoot burning liquid through the throat until he passes out. After a long week of being on his feet, carrying six pounds full and sometimes empty propane tanks to businesses along the streets of Santa Ana, El Salvador, 
I imagine him with paper and pencil, thinking of what to write my mother and I, already long gone in another country with paved streets, promising to take care of us if we would just return and try, nursing his aching back and calloused feet, tired hands and an old elbow injury, rethinking the take care of us part. The pencil lead breaks on the word love and on the words promise, believe, chance, and future, and has to start all over again on new paper because it needs to be perfect. Like his attendance to the corner market on Monday mornings for the delivery. My mother already knows the words unformed from his fingertips and father keeps breaking up his love page after page after page. The story is about a little boy named Damian, who is not afraid of La Llorona or her monster friends, Los Cucuis. But they are determined to frighten Damian, whatever it takes, <clears throat> because according to La Llorona, all children should fear her and her monster friends. This is called La Llorona Can't Scare Me. La Llorona No Me Asusta. And it goes something like this. The scary ghost of La Llorona is hollering up a storm outside little Damian's window. She's going, ay, mis hijos, oh, my children, trying to scare little Damian. But little Damian, no tiene miedo. He's not afraid, not even a little bit. He looks at La Llorona and says, you silly Llorona, scream all you want. You can't scare me. Not even a little bit. So La Llorona is shocked because all children fear La Llorona. This is unnatural. She can't allow this to happen, to continue to stand. So she calls in for help. Yes, La Llorona has friends. And they are called Los Cucuis. The first two Cucuis that appear are two large lechuzas, witch owls. And they're flying around the room going hoot, hoot, hoot. And they flap their wings and stare at Damian with their scary glowing red eyes. But Damian says, you silly lechuzas flying around my room, trying to scare me, you can't scare me. Not even a little bit. Well, lechuzas don't know what to do because Damian is not afraid of La Llorona and he's not afraid of two lechuzas flying around in his room. But then Damian hears the sound of little voices whispering under his bed. Damian says, who could be whispering under my bed? So he looks under, and what does he see? He sees one, two, three little green duendes, little green trolls making scary sounds, trying to scare him. He goes, you silly little duendes, are you trying to scare me? One of the duendes looks up at Damian and says, is it working? Damian says, not even a little bit. So Damian is not afraid of Llorona. He is not afraid of no lechuzas, and he's not even afraid of three little duendes whispering under his bed. But next, Damian hears someone knocking at his door. Knock, knock, knock. Das, das, das. Nita says, I think it might be the donkey lady, because I can hear going, hee-haw, hee-haw, on the other side of the door. He peeks through the hole, and yes, it is the donkey lady. 
he opened the door and says, you silly donkey lady, you can't scare me, not with those silly donkey ears of yours. Not even a little bit. For Damian is not afraid of La, Le La Llorona. He is not afraid of the lechuzas. He's not afraid of duendes. And even the donkey lady cannot scare him. But next, Damian hears the sound of feet running on top of his roof. Das, 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 das. And he sees something leap through his window. He sees something leap off the roof and perch itself on the tree next to his bedroom window. He goes, runs up to the window and sees that it's El Chupacabras. And it's looking at him going, <sighs> staring at him with those scary red eyes of his. But Damian says, you silly Chupacabras, you can't scare me. Not even a little bit. So Damian is not afraid of La Llorona. He is not afraid of no witch owls. Duendes don't scare him. Donkey lady, don't scare him. And now even the much-feared chupacabras cannot scare him. <clears throat> but then when he turns around, he sees on top of his bed, one, two, three little diablitos, three little devils jumping up and down in his bed, and they're all wearing lucha libre masks. And Damian says, are you three little devils trying to scare me? They jump up even higher trying to scare him. He says, you can't scare me, not even a little bit. And he grabs the bed sheet and he pulls it, knocking all three little diablitos down to the ground off his bed. So now Damian is not afraid of La Llorona. He is not afraid of no witch owls. Duendes under his bed don't scare him. Donkey don't scare him. Chupacabras don't scare him. And even little three little devils jumping up and down in his bed, they don't scare him. But then... He hears a voice coming from outside his bedroom window. And he turns around and he sees a bruja, a witch. And she is casting spells at him. Damian walks up to the window and says, You silly bruja, you can't scare me. Not with, by trying to cast spells on me. Not even a little bit. I'm not afraid of you. Now Damian has not been scared by La Llorona. The chusas don't scare him. Duendes don't scare him. Donkey lady don't scare him. Chupacabras don't scare him. Little devils jumping on top of his bed don't scare him. And even a bruja, a witch, can no, cannot scare him. But then he hears a sound going, ooh, and he turns around, and he's a ghost, a fantasma rattling its chains. And Damian says, you silly fantasma, do you really think I'm going to be scared of you? Not even a little bit. So now, Damian is not afraid of La Llorona. He is not afraid of no witch owls. Duendes don't scare him. Donkey lady don't scare him. Chupacabras can't scare him. Devils on top of his bed don't scare him. A bruja don't scare him. A fantasma don't scare him. But then one of the big guns shows up. Because his closet door swings open. And from inside his closet, out steps. I found this on the web. Who's talking to you? <laughs> out steps. Yeah, the watch can't remind of its own. It's haunted. Uh, out steps El Cucuy. And he is carrying a burlap sack, una bolsa. And he says, I'm El Cucuy, and I'm going to steal you away. Damian looks at the Cucuy. Then he looks at the, at the bag and says, you silly cuckoo. 
Haven't you noticed? I've gotten too big to fit in your burlap sack. You can't steal me. And you don't scare me either. So now Damian is not afraid of La Llorona. He is not afraid of no witch owls. He is not afraid of duendes. He is not afraid of the donkey lady. Chupacabras don't scare him. Duendes, uh, little devils jumping on top of his bed don't scare him. A bruja don't scare him. A fantasma don't scare him. And even El Cujuy can scare him. But next, a calavera appears. The kind you see during Dia de los Muertos. And it's singing and dancing and making scary sounds to scary music as it sings and dances. And Damian says, really? You think you can scare me with music and dancing? I love to dance. I love to sing. And Damian starts to sing and dance too. I'm not scared of you, Calavera. Not even a little bit. Now the cuckoos are all, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. La Llorona finally says, why aren't you scared of me? Everybody's afraid of La Llorona. Damian says, do you really want to know why you can't scare me? Yes, says La Llorona. We really truly want to know. Do your friends want to know? Yes, they all yell. We all want to know. Why can't we scare you? Because I have a secret weapon that will make you all run away and hide. Do you want to know what it is? Yes, they yell. We really want to know. And Damian says, he reaches under his pillow and pulls out his luchador nightlight that is wearing a silver mask. He plugs it into the wall, turns it on, and light fills the room, light emanating from his mighty mass, silver luchador. All the cuckoos run, looking for a place to hide, trying to get away from the light of his mighty luchador. And that's why Damian declares, and that's why none of you can scare me. And he holds up his mighty luchador nightlight for all of them to see, but you're welcome to come back and try any time. And that's why La Llorona can't scare little Damian. Tan tan. So this is a chapter that's called Lali Comes Home. Now it is April and summer already. She is from here, but she's forgotten how hot it is even in April. Or maybe things had changed in her long absence, grown even hotter than what she remembered. All she knows is that in the gash of California's Central Valley, the high summer sun had seemed to stand feet from your face, getting up in your grill like a playground bully, but it had left the air alone. In California, the differential of shade and nightfall still had meaning. Not so in San Antonio. Here, the air is thirsty for all the heat it can hold. This city is different that way built to radiate outward from a center, teetering at a nexus of the four directions, trees to the east, coast to the south, hills to the north, and to the west, desert. Not that California didn't burn in its own way. In California, there were heat waves and, and flash fires, entire forests of ponderosas and sugar pines combusting spontaneously. Or once, when she was heavy with Nena, 
A heat wave had descended and lasted for four or five days. Come midnight, the cats still, still lay splay-legged on their backs in the middle of the kitchen floor, panting. She worried then that they would all die, and scared for the baby forming inside her, she had drawn a cold bath and lay there all night and through the next day. Living in NorCal, they had no AC. The house had been built without it. But when that heat wave had lifted, they'd asked their landlord for a window unit, and he had complied grudgingly, but raised their rent. It had been a running argument between Lali and Hector, which was hotter, Califas or Tejas. But the heat waves, Hector would always protest. And yes, the heat waves. And on top of those were the earthquakes and the budget crises and strikes, the upground rumblings of giant underground things, fault lines shifting and rubbing. California was the France of Atzlan, its borderline younger sister who ran on a higher rev, hotter and crazier and out of control. The enlightened civility of its prohibitively tiny parking spaces and gas mileage standards and mandatory smog checks was belied by their necessity in the reality of furious traffic, furious activity, and furious competition. Everyone converged on California to get something and go. They had gotten out of California right before the metaphorical house came crashing down, amid the onset of killing drought and wildfires and tuition spiking like fever, closely followed by student protests and occupations over slash public programs. California was hot that way, a fever that came on suddenly with the power to kill you, but overlaid atop a seasonless backdrop of serene blue sky, the nighttime relief of the Delta breeze. In San Antonio, though, the heat stays and stays, inert and unmoving as death. Its persistence is an immediacy that opens her body like stomata to be absorbed into a landscape of home as soon as she is back, in the strange double take of memory, realizing not simply what she has forgotten, but how much she has not, realizing the impossibility of forgetting and also of being forgotten. The heat of April is a surprise, but the surprise itself is a greeting or a welcoming back. The surprise is the shock, not of the novel, but of a forgotten familiar, an uncanniness. Unheimlich in German had that double meaning that Freud loved, meaning something at once homely and strange. All that spring and summer until Lali's savings run out. Nena goes with family three days a week so Lali can finish her dissertation. Flow is called Water Movements in Political Life leaving the other days to be filled with errands and outings that take forever on the bus in the heat. She has a car, but Hector needs it to get to work. On the return, he'd look for something closer by, better suited for his art degree, but finding nothing quickly, he'd settled for the telemarketing gig on the far north side. Later, he'd buy his own clunker off a of Craigslist for a couple thou, but those first hot seasons back, Lali and Nena are carless. In California, she toted Nena in a pouch strapped to her front or to her back. But it is too hot to do that in South Texas, and Nena has grown too big and squirmy besides, too hot, and there's no money to buffer it. You learn ways to adapt. You carry water bottles, 
filled with ice that melts by the time you get to where you're going, the free city pool or the public library. Enchilada red, that was how they described the color of its exterior. You know. <laughs> you remember when they built it. You skipped school once to go check it out. To shekalo, in the tongue-in-cheek Spanglish of your extended family, your dad's side anyway. Mom is white, but she's been here so long she says it too, unselfconsciously. You remember a physics class from 10th grade after you were uprooted from San Anto to rural areas north, but before you ran away from home, the, the year you ran away from home, with a Mexicana student teacher who pronounced her che as sh, and how relentlessly the Anglo kids and polos laughed at her until one day she fled the room crying. And the way the coach in charge of the class laughed alongside those students and called you too sensitive when you challenged him, his doughy face pouty, his festivity spoiled. It was because your own body bore the struggles over this hot land, brown and white, that your heart had run after the teacher running out of the room, knowing you would never stand with those who laughed, even if your body passed for one who did. And because of this, you never took another science class again, if you didn't have to. Although science had been your first intellectual passion as a kid, inhaling marine biology textbooks in a furious effort to understand enough about hydrology to save the oceans from oil spills and plastic waste. Hot landscape full of stories like this, a free association of lines drawn between places and bodies and stories and bigger histories embedding them back and back and on and on with no clear determining logic, no master referent, just one thing reminding of another and another. And here was where I, and here I remember that this was coming home. The pool or the public library, and when you got there, the ice would be melted, but the water would still be cold. Or once, right after moving back, you rode the bus to a paleteria you remember visiting as a child, an igloo-shaped building with smooth walls, painted such a bright shade of chicle blue, you've wondered if your memory was actually a dream. But no, 25 years later, there it stood. And you could still get a shaved ice in a foam cup with one strata of mango and another of lime, squeezed over the top with fresh lime, requested in embarrassed Spanish. When they slid the little window to take your money or hand you a paper-wrapped cup, you could feel the window AC from the interior you could smell the cold, the smell of freezer, of Freon. Here, in this city, you sat patiently uh, outside at a crumb-dusted picnic table with your sticky nena, nursing melting raspas as you stared at a colorful map of Botanas, its cartography of treats hung to neon green siding. Raspas you could get natural, finely shaved ice with the fruit and sugar blended in, or in the old style, coarsely ground with syrup, or even topped with ice cream. Frito pie, hot flaming Cheetos in a silver cellophane sack, smothered with the orange plastic of canned nacho cheese and topped with pickled jalapenos. Pickle juice popsicles, fresh cups of fruit dusted with chile or smothered with chamoy sludge. Chicharrones, or their swine-free counterpart the fried hard wheels of red wheat flour called Doritos. You could do these things on the bus in April, 
but you could feel it coming, the sticky, tropical heat soon to roll off the gulf. April was a window of time whose air felt blank white, a sheet of paper waiting for writing, a summoned story premonitory in its absence. Come Mayday, it would be impossible, inescapable, in your house, in your lungs, in the folds of your body filling with sweat thick as glue. It is strange to think that just two months before, in February, the river had frozen and blackouts blanketed the city, extinguishing all light. Her parents had emailed pictures of the snow back when she and Hector were still in California, shoveling all their shit into boxes as they prepared to come home. The coldest winter on record, her mother had written. She was from Chicago. She would know cold winter. Now, in April, there's no trace of it. As they sit at a green picnic table, trying to eat raspas faster than they can melt. Scene two, the hills become a hospital, the river becomes a bed, the border becomes a wall, me. The wounds had been made by a machete, but America didn't care about it as a news story. And in a hospital along the border, men, women, and children lay severed, limb stumps pulsing angry red against black skin. And while America didn't care about us as a news story, Irelia Gideon Nine, Senalia Pierre, 22, Cameron Pion, 11, lay severed, limb stumps pulsing angry, red against black skin, whole families fleshed by the flashing fury of a machete. Survivors like Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron cried out, clenched fist, tongue, trilled tongues, and swallowed screams. Whole families fleshed red, a fury of flashing machetes, asking, what had they done to deserve this? Crying out, clenched fist, tongue trills and swallowed screams, thousands of butchered bodies buried beneath ravines burn with why. What had they done to deserve this? Separated skin, kin and bone felled from flesh floating down a river red with thousands of butchered bodies bobbing and burning along ravines, there was only one who denied it. The president of Santo Domingo separated skin, kin, felled bone from flesh and sent it floating down a river red while Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron remember the only one who denied it, the president of Santo Domingo. And in a hospital along the border, Men, women, and children like Irelia, Senalia, and Cameron remember their wounds made by a machete. I wanted to read to you the part where she explains it. I try to stay present, like Mercy warned, but then something has changed, and I know it's happening again. That weird thing Juelita Rosa calls echoes, the dawn, 
a kind of woman's intuition with sights and sounds and smells shared by most of the women in my family starts to manifest something before me. I stand very still, trying not to be overwhelmed, waiting for the premonition to not to pass through me as it does most times. The morning light pulses and wavers, making each bristle of dark hair on the caterpillar glint and bounce back light. Suddenly, I am somewhere else. The echo is clear as raindrops shimmering on freshly polished black patent leather shoes. And I am suspended in another time, another space. A light breeze filters through the dead leaves of the mulberry tree and the caterpillar's fuzzy hairs tremble. The soft red belly starts to quiver and palpitate as if something inside of it is trying to push itself out. Spotted wings like white oleander blossoms burst through the caterpillar's back and almost as quickly desiccate and drop off. Delicate yellow sprouts begin to break through the tender segments of flesh. They spiral upward and outward, spiny horns that grow and grow, but then the flesh darkens and dulls, and one after another, the black bristles fall off and lie glistening on Alexander's hand like dark poisoned pine needles and hundreds of tiny, white, starving maggots, thin and spindly as grass roots, crawl out of it. They devour the moist innards so fast, so swiftly, it frightens me. Susanna was born in summer homes and palatial groves with pain was only to unfold from the pages of secret gardens where the red fern grows, but not I. See, I come from the stock of star-eyed astronauts, breathing at scout, big dreams and wide eyes, always running down the devil's highway through occupied America. On the back house on Mango Street, and all the books you don't want us to read. There's a handball of the back wall of a panaderia born east the river post Mendez versus Westminster, one generation with red lines and diplomas that were signed that those dreams and that skin need not apply. See, I come from struggle. And if my story offends you, it is only because you made the mistake of seeking your reflection in my self-portrait. See, this will not be about you. Because some are born of the common core, whose reflected faces grace the pages of doctors discovered an age to be explored. Where old world hardships crashed against new shores, New England, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, for others, pushed off to the island, Aslan, do not call this brown-skinned immigrant. Child of son, son of the conquest, Mexicano blood, running through the veins the east side of Los Angeles. Do not tell him if we have tongue a song would best be sung. Do not tell me who I am. Because I was raised like you, miseducated in some of those very same schools of lessons and legends of honest Indians and Christian pilgrims and a nation of immigrants all united in freedom that isn't until they pulled aside my white friend pointed directly at me and said, Scott, I judge you by the company you keep and you spend your time with this. And I say, my story, 1846, the 
You'd finish Uncle Sam the stick up, man, he wet back. Show me your papers now, give me your labor, the melting pot. Was never made for the hands to clean it. The American dream has always come at the expense of those who tucked it in. You don't know that. So you don't teach it. Could write you a book, but you won't read it. See, what's about you? And 1492, and the Treaty of Guadalupe, and California missions, and Arizona schools, these racists, they're trying to erase us as we're kids in cities that bear our names. But you can learn some today, from Ferdinand to Minuteman, from Arpaio to Alamo, from Popo Buddha, so Joaquin, the Indian, as it lives in me from MC8 to MC43, and try to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Can they have minds? They didn't strike the planet. Allah, Mr. Potter, Wakimi Eda, Zagalitas, Brown Beresi, Zapatistas, Richard Nixon, through Napoleon, from Peckinpah to Houston, from Lone Republic to Christopher Columbus, all the way down to Donald Trump. We didn't cross the borders. The borders crossed us. Who you calling immigrants? Pilgrim. Tune in, everybody. This is Tony Diaz. I want to thank Roxana Guzman, who is our producer for our social platform broadcast. Also, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes our show and audio for KPFT 90.1 FM. Mark Andre Pignon is our graphics designer. Ramos Ortiz is in charge of our search engine optimization. Uh, Leticia Lopez helps us with music. And of course, you, dear listeners, are always supporting us. Thanks a lot, and we look forward to seeing you at the arts. <laughs>